chapter 22, and it, most of you probably won't catch this, but we're, we're skipping a passage. If you, uh, we, we go through every passage of Matthew, but the, the passage that would be on for this week is such a good Easter passage about the resurrection, and so I'm saving that for Easter, and we're going to skip over that and do the next, the next passage, and, uh, and that's where we're going to pick up here in uh, Matthew 24, starting in verse 34, and hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Then he said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and you know how deeply our souls need to hear from you, for you to speak to us. And so we pray that as we set our minds to study this infallible, perfect word, holy word that you've given to us, um, and to learn about this passage through an imperfect and flawed teacher. We pray that your spirit would translate these words, um, my words, that uh, they would speak to the individual lives that are all present here. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. Give us ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to spend a little time talking about a kind of the big picture of the Bible. What is the Bible about as a whole? What's the message of the Bible as a whole? And in some ways, you know, there are two large messages that the Bible communicates to us that have traditionally been called the law and the gospel. So the first of these, the law, which uh, is an announcement to us about how God expects us to live. How, you know, how to relate to him, how to interact with one another. That's what the law is. And I think actually for most people, they, that's what they think that primarily the Bible is about. You know, if you're, if, you know I'm going to get some church in. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to get some Bible in. I think the reason that would be good is because the Bible teaches good morals. And, you know, if you haven't read the Bible, you probably expect when I read it, there's going to be all kinds of stories in there about these Bible heroes who trusted God and walked with God and, and they were faithful and they, and they loved people and they did all these heroic deeds and I'm going to feel inspired by them. And the problem with that is that if you go and you read the Bible and you read most of the stories, you, you'd be very puzzled and you say, you know, I'm not sure I want to be quite like these people. And even, you know, the greatest heroes did some fairly objectionable things. You know, you, know, you think about uh, uh, Abraham, the father of the faithful, who 
you know, told Pharaoh that his wife was his sister and gave her over to him so she could sleep with the Pharaoh. You know, or you look at David who's a man after God's own heart. He's an adulterer and a murderer. And, uh, you know, you look at Samuel, the great prophet. He had these unjust and wicked, you know, sons. And, you know, and, uh, and all the kings of Israel and Judah were all these idolaters. And you, as you read it, you say, I'm not sure that this is a book of morals, if, if you read it. And the reason for that is because the law... The message about how we should live is not the main message of the Bible. The Bible is not primarily about how to live, how to be a good person, how to obey God. The main message of the Bible is actually the gospel, and which is a radically different kind of message than the law. And uh, you may say that, you know, one of the ways to say that, the main difference between the law and the gospel is that the law is something that we do Whereas the gospel is something that God has done for us on our behalf. See, they're two different, very, two different very, uh, kinds of things. And in particular, the gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And understanding the difference between these two, between the law and the gospel, is absolutely crucial for spiritual health, spiritual maturity, understanding how to relate to God. It's essential for us as a community, be a healthy church community, is to understand this distinction between the law and the gospel. And you can see in this passage that I think this distinction is something that was on Jesus' mind. Because this scene that we just read, it, it comes from the last week before Jesus is going to be crucified. Um, uh, the last week of his ministry, he's just come on a journey from Galilee. That's where Jesus' ministry was. That's where he grew up, which is 65 miles north of Jerusalem. He's walked down with a whole crowd to Jerusalem, and it's the Passover week, and there's all these people there, and, you know, thousands and thousands of people have descended on Jerusalem, and all these church uh, religious leaders have begun questioning Jesus about what kind of leader he is. And in this chapter, there are three questions that he asked them. The first one we looked at last week is about, you know, what do you think about Caesar? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? The next one is a question about the resurrection. We're going to look at that on Easter. And then the third question is the one that we just read in this passage in verse 34, where it says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. You see, he's asking him a question. To test him, teacher... Which is the great commandment in the law? He's asking a question about the law, and that which actually Jesus answers very powerfully. We're going to look at that. But then after they ask him these three questions, Jesus turns around and says, you know what, I'm going to ask you a question now. I'm going to talk to you about the thing that's on my mind that I want to ask you a question about. Verse 41, now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? They asked him a question about the law. He asked them a question about the gospel, about the Christ, the coming of the Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at these, uh, these verses and learn to carefully understand the distinction between the law and the gospel by answering these two questions. These are two questions we're going to look at. First, what does the law do? The law is there in the Bible. It's important. What is its purpose? What is it, how does it function in our lives? It's an important question. And then once we've answered that question, then we're going to answer a second question. In light of what the, gospel, the law does, what then is the gospel? What is it? You know, the gospel is a word that if you come to our church, we talk about it all the time, and you hear it's almost like this jargon word that often can lose a lot of meaning because we just throw it around so easily. So we're going to talk a little specifically about what is the gospel. So two questions this morning. First one, what does the law do? And in particular, the law does these two things. The law shows us who God is, 
and the law shows us who we are. That's what the law does. It shows us who God is, and it shows us who we are. So first of all, the law shows us who God is. And, you know, I know for some of you, when you hear the word law, it's not a word that necessarily inspires you or excites you. Like, yeah, I want to talk about law. You know, this guy was a lawyer who's asking this question. Lawyers are all into, you know, uh, <laughs> studying laws and the minutia of it. And that may not excite you. You think it's a lot of rules. It's about losing your freedom. And, but this is really an amazing statement here from Jesus. Verse 36, look at what it says. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most of you probably heard this saying from Jesus before, I mean, it's very famous, two commandments from Jesus, but you may not know that these are quotes from the Old Testament, actually from the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus uh, 19, that Jesus is quoting. And, um, and what does he grab onto? You, know, you think of the whole Old Testament. I mean, it's a, it's a all this huge collection of books. And what is the word that Jesus grabs onto that says this is really the summary? Is love. You want to know what the Bible's about? It's about love. And then he says this amazing comment, verse 40, on these two commandments, these two commands to love, love God and love your neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were the, the Old Testament. That was the only Bible that they had in that time. And so here's this book, the Bible, that tells you what God is like. And he says the whole thing is about love. And that's why in the Old Testament, you know, some of us, when we hear about the law, it's kind of like, ah, I'm not sure I want to hear much about the law. In the Old Testament, they're not that way. You know, there's the longest chapter in the whole Bible, Psalm 119, is a whole song just singing about how great the law is, and we delight in it, and we'd love to read it, and we'd love to hear about it, and we'd love to study it, and find wonders in it, and we love it to guide our path. And there's this huge celebration is because the law is a display of the heart of God and what God is like, and that the God that created the universe is a God of love. That's an important thing, of course, as Christians. It says that whatever we do in our Christian life, you know, you study theology or you do spiritual disciplines, you pray and you read the Bible or you fast or you go to church or you're serving in ministries, whatever you're doing, if it does not ultimately culminate in love for God and love for other people, it is useless. Theology, knowledge, is useless unless it results in love because love is, is, is who God is and what he's about. And the reason for this, God himself, the Bible says, is love. You know, there's a, a, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's famous Mere Christianity, it's one of the things that he observes in there is why it's so important that Christians have said that God is not one person, but is actually three persons. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because God cannot be love if he's only one person. Love requires at least two persons to be loving each other. And so Christians have always said that God himself is not just a one person, but he is a community of love. There's this, these mutual relationships where, you know, the father says he'll do whatever the son asks him, and the son, you know, obeys the father and does whatever he ever asks, and, and the son glorifies the father, and the father glorifies the son, and the spirit glorifies the son and the father. And, you know, there's this mutual respect. There's this transparency, this mutual service. There's this delighting in one another. It's just this vibrant community of love is what there was before, you know, you ask, what was there before the universe began? What is the deep 
reality behind all things. It is a God who is a relational community of love. And so this law that's displayed for us shows us what God is like, what his heart is, and who he is. It's incredibly beautiful. And, you know, this is actually, this view of God is, is actually very different than the way our culture thinks of kind of the essence of reality and the essence of human life. Because, you know, in traditional cultures, if you grew up in a, in a traditional culture, how did you decide what your life was going to be about? You know, what you were going to do with your life? It was what your clan or your tribe told you you were going to do. You know, my dad was a, made shoes, then I'm going to make shoes. My dad was a dairy farmer, I'm going to be a dairy farmer. And my identity is tied up into my clan or my tribe. But in, uh, in the modern world, your identity is solely de- determined as an individual. Your self-actualization. Your identity is about becoming you. And that there is this God-like power within us that simply needs to be set free. And then I will become myself when this God-like power inside of me can just be set, can be set free. And so abundant life, according to our culture, is removing anything that's hindering me from becoming myself and learning to trust in the power that's within myself. Now, you know, I became a Christian when I was 17. I, I hadn't really... I'd never been to church. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And um, one of the first questions I had when I became a Christian was, you know, I'm learning to trust in Jesus, trust in God. And there's other people who are kind of learning to trust in themselves, that they have this inner power. You know, I believe there's this power that's in God, and these other people believe they have this power inside of them. And, you know, psychologically, are these kind of functionally the same thing? Are we really doing anything different? I just call it God. You call it the inner power. Is there really anything different? There's one major difference. Trusting in God involves two persons. There's me and there's God. That means there can be love. That means there can be trust. That means there can be intimacy. That means there can be relationship. That means there can be community. But if I'm trusting in my inner power, there's not two persons, there's one. There's independence, there's isolation. That is deeply anti-relational. It's anti the law of God and the beauty of who God is. And, um, and so the law of God is the life of love because God himself is love. And when we behold the law of God, we see who God is and therefore what life is really about. And so what does the law do? It shows us who God is. But, you know, many of us, when we uh, hear that, wow, God is love, we're not necessarily encouraged by that news. Um, even the word law, I know for some of you, just the word law causes a kind of anxiety in you, you know, about, uh, I, are we going to talk about the law? That makes it, I, I, I get tense when that word comes up, you know, God's expectations, responsibilities. And I think that is because of the second thing that the law does, is not only that the law shows us who God is, but also the law shows us who we are. And, uh, you know, when you look at the law and you see that God is just and he's generous and he cares for the poor and he's relational and he's faithful, the law acts like a mirror that reflects back to us what we're really like. When we look into the law, it shows us who we are. And it's so remarkable, you know, it's something that's so good as the law. You know, it's so beautiful. Wow, God is love and love for God and love for your neighbor. It's to be so enchantingly beautiful can also be so crushing at the same time. I mean, that, that, you know, the irony of that, that something is so beautiful is so crushing at the same time. And when we honestly gaze into that mirror, we see 
that we're self-absorbed, we're petty, we're vengeful. And the law actually deeply condemns us. The law announces to us that we have failed to live up to God's standards and we deserve his judgment. And uh, what's even more discouraging about the law is that, you know, is that uh, even though the law of God can tell you how beautiful God is and that love is what life is about, it gives this beautiful vision of human life, the law does not have the power to make you loving. The law cannot change you. And so the law not only tells you, shows you as a mirror that you were not loving, but then it also doesn't have the power to give us a new heart and to transform us. And so it's deeply discouraging to look at the law. And some of you maybe have heard this illustration before, the illustration of the plumb line. You know what a plumb line is, a line that you use to make sure a, a wall is straight. And you could ask the question, can a plumb line make a wall straight? No. And that's what the law is like. The law shows you whether you are straight. You know, the plumb line will show you that the, that the wall is crooked, but it won't fix the wall. And if we try to look to the law that is showing us that we are crooked, that we fall short of God's standard, it will fail us in trying to give us a new heart. And it's because that this is what the law does, is it shows us a mirror of who we are, that there are three ways that we can respond to the law. So the first is, you know, when you experience the anxiety that comes from the law, is simply to ignore it. You know, um, you know, for many young people, this may be you. You know, maybe you grew up in a church. If like all you heard about was the law and what God expected of you, what God demanded of you over and over again, and you're just thinking, you know, for Sunday after Sunday and year after year, and it's just like this crushing load that is so discouraging, is just weighing you down. And then finally, they just say, you know what? I'm getting away from the, the, the church. It's just crushing me. I don't want anywhere near it. And then so some people say, you know, even stepping foot in a church just makes my skin crawl. Because it reminds me of that, that huge weight that was laid upon me. And so on the one hand, you can have a response to the law that says, I'm just not even going to think about it. I don't even want to know what God expects. I don't even care. I'm just going to la la pretend it's not there because I, I, I can't stand to think about it. But, you know, there's another response to the law is to say, you know, oh, yeah, God loves people who keep the law. So I better find a law that I can keep. And so we change it. We change law, or we focus in on a part of the law that I feel pretty confident that I can do, and I say, that's a really important thing. And if I can do that thing, then I know that I've met God's standard, and I can feel secure and know that he's going to bless my life. And, you know, you can see in this passage that something like that is happening in this conversation with the, the Pharisee in verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. She tells us there's something about this question, and it's not an honest question. There's something self-serving about this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is to say, show me exactly what I need to do to know that I'm righteous. And, um, and if I do these things, then I can know that I'm in God's favor and that he'll bless me. And so he's actually trying to narrow down the law. And Jesus is brilliant, of course. And he's saying, you know, there's not one thing you can do. It's a whole state of your heart that God is looking for, a state of love towards God and others. I mean, you know, it, it, uh, he uh, evades the test. But um, this is a religious response to the law. You know, you can have an irreligious response to the law that says, I don't even want to think about it. Or you can have a religious response to the law that lessens the law to something that you think you can do, and then God will owe me his favor. 
And you know, some of you, you maybe you've tried that. You know, maybe you've tried that in this church. You know, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to do the things that Nate announces that we, we should be doing as Christians. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my life in order. And then when I start doing all these things, my expectation is that, that God will bless me. If I do these things, then God will bless me. And, you know, it's just, it's ironic, it's haunting to think about that approach to the law. I'm going to do all these things, then God will bless me. Is that even though I'm doing all these religious things, my motivations are still self-serving. I'm still self-absorbed. I'm still petty. I'm still vengeful towards others, and yet I have this whole religious veneer that is covering that. My heart hasn't changed at all, and yet I'm even more blinded to the things that I'm doing because I think I'm being such a good religious person. And so the law, so it doesn't work. And so the law can condemn you, and if you have a loving heart, if you have a new heart, the the law can be a guide to you as well, but the law cannot give you a new heart. And that is why it's so important to consider a third response to the law, which is not to ignore the law and not to change the law or lessen it to something that I think that I can do and I can accomplish. But it is instead to let the law drive me to Jesus. This is one of the main purposes of the law is for the law to drive me to my Savior, to let the law convict me, let the law show me that I am self-absorbed and I'm petty and I'm vengeful and I am all these things live inside my heart and let it lead me to the grace that is in Jesus. And this response to the law, by the way, this is not just for someone who's not a Christian. If you've been a Christian for decades... This is how the law should function in your life, is when it convicts you. It's a mirror that shows you your sin. It continually leads you to Jesus. Because we continually need to go to him and find in him grace and find that he's a savior, instead of trying to prove ourselves to God that we are good enough for him. And so this leads us to our second question. So we first, uh, we've answered, what does the law do? It shows us the beauty of who God is. And the law also sh- shows us that we are not like him and that we need a savior. And so this leads to our second question, is what then is the gospel? The law leads us to the gospel. They work together, but um, what is the gospel? And this is a unique quality of Christianity, that its main message is not something that we do, but it is something that God has done. And the main message is a story of how God has saved us from the destruction of our sinful nature, And this story is a radically different kind of message than the law. And so, you know, for example, I I began this last year reading through the Koran. And, you know, I think for most people who are neither Christian nor Muslim, you know, they think of, you know, the Bible, the Koran, I mean, it's all kind of the same thing, right? They're holy books. And, you know, you study them and you read them and you pray and then you follow God and you believe in God. And, I, you know, my guess is that they're roughly the kind of same genre of book, Koran and Bible. But um, if you read the first, just read the first 50 pages of the Koran and the first 50 pages of the Bible. And you will immediately see that they're not even close to the same genre of book. They're, they're different kinds of literature. They, w- they should be in different uh, parts of Barnes & Noble because... Uh, because the opening lines of the Quran, this is like the second paragraph, I think, reads this. 
This is the scripture in which there is no doubt containing guidance for those who are mindful of God, who believe in the unseen, keep up the prayer, and give out of what we have provided for them. Such people are following their Lord's guidance, and it is they who will prosper. And so immediately, opening lines of the Quran are what? You, you, uh, you're commanded to follow the guidance of the book, to be mindful of God, to believe in the unseen, to keep up your prayers, to uh, give of what's been given to you. And if you do, then God will prosper you. Remarkably, you read the first 50 pages of the Bible, which is Genesis, the book of Genesis, there's not one command in the whole thing. You're not told to do anything. It's not. It's a story. It's about stor- a story about God who made a world And then humanity rebels against him, and then he makes this cryptic promise that there is this man who's the son of the woman who is going to crush the serpent's head with his heel. And then it's about God choosing these people and drawing them to himself. It doesn't tell us to do anything. It's an announcement of something that God is doing. It's a story about what God is doing in his world. It's a completely different kind of message. And, you know, I I have to make one point. Um, G.K. Chesterton, who's maybe, you know, outside of the Bible, probably my favorite author, he wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And at one point in Orthodoxy, he makes the observation, you know, it's very common for people to say, you know, religions of the world are on the surface different. But if you get down to the core of what they're teaching, they're really teaching the same thing. And what Chesterton says is, you know, it's the exact opposite. That's not true. It's on the surface, all the religions look the same. You know, they all got a church or a temple. They all got a holy book. They're all saying prayers. They all, they all got some pastor that gets them and talks, and, you know, meets with them for counsel. And, you know, they have community formation. They get together and they sing songs. On the surface, they all look like they're doing the same thing. It's not until you look at what they're teaching that you find out that they are radically different. And the thing that is radically different about the Bible is the gospel, the story of the gospel about how God is rescuing sinful humanity, a sinful people for himself. It is something that he is doing. And the way that Jesus turns the attention of the Pharisees away from their questions, now to his question, which shows up in verse 42, which is this. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now Jesus is is quoting Psalm 110 here, his famous uh, Messianic psalm. And in these few statements, we learn the essence of what the gospel is about. And the gospel is about these three things, that Jesus became a man, that Jesus became a savior, and that Jesus became a king. And you see first that Jesus became a man. You know, uh, uh, Jesus picks up in this, this verse, there's this little puzzle here, where David's son is his Lord. And he's saying, you guys got to work that out. There's something going on there. If David's son is his Lord, it must mean that David's son existed before David. That means that David's son, the man who's going to come, is God become a man. And that's who Jesus is, is God. It's not us becoming spiritual and aspiring to God. It's God coming down to us. That's what the gospel is about. And then it turns out that when he comes, 
He is going to be a savior. You know that, that bit about he's going to make all, put his enemies under his feet? Does that remind you of anything? Put his enemies under his feet. That cryptic statement at the beginning of the Bible, the serpent is going to get crushed under his heel. He's the one who's going to, sit, he's going to destroy the destroyer. And the one who's caused us to be alienated from God and our sin. And Jesus is going to go and die on the cross. And when he dies on the cross, he is going to disarm the powers of evil in the world on the cross. And so he's a savior. And then, lastly, he's going to sit at his right hand. You know, that's this kingly language. We talk about that in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to be the king over, who's going to set all things right in creation. We have a share in his kingdom. And by his resurrection, God has showed that he, shown that he is the true king over all creation. And so this statement of the gospel is not a statement about something that God expects us to do. It is a statement about something that God has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us. The gospel is, listen to this. This is what the gospel is for you. This is what God's offering to you. To have all your selfishness forgiven, washed, and covered that your debt against God would be fully paid for you, that you'd be brought into God's kingdom, into God's household, that you would be adopted by God. You'd be adopted and brought into his family and called one of his own, and you'd be taught by him, and you'd be protected by him, and you'd be fed by him, and you'd live with all of his other children, and you'd be filled with his spirit. And all of these things, this announcement, is what is ours in Jesus. And so the law is something that is commanded for you to obey. The gospel is something that is offered to you to receive as a gift. And so when Christians are always talking about, you know, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved or to know God, believing in Jesus is having a soft heart to receive God's love and gift that is freely offered in the gospel. That's what believing is, is trusting that God would be that good to give these things to us and call us his own. So the question for us today is, what message do you need to hear today? Is it the law or the gospel? And actually, it depends. Because, um, you know, some of you may be here and you say, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself a sinner. Um, I'm a pretty decent person. I mind my own business. I, I don't do anything too seriously wrong. And God's message to you this morning is the gospel is a mirror for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I defy you to find one day of your life where you've kept that law. One day out of the thousands. We are nowhere near meeting God's law, and God's law is given to humble the proud. But some of you are here, and you are the exact opposite. And your biggest feelings that you have about yourself is this massive load of failure. I, have, I know I, I don't even come close to God's law. I, I mean, I'm not 50%, I'm not 40%, I'm not, I'm not even close. I know I have zero days. I, you don't even need to tell me that. The message for you this morning is the gospel. To use that load, that conviction that the law gives to you, and use it to drive you to Jesus. To experience fresh his grace that he receives you as a sinner. He does not expect you to clean up your life and then come to him. He wants you to come to him the way you are, now, and this is true if you've been a Christian for decades and you should have had it figured out by now, he wants you to come to him as 
a sinner. And what's so amazing is when you do that and you realize, you know, I have no standing. I don't deserve anything from God. And, and, and I go to Jesus and you find that he receives you. What happens? The miracle happens that your heart begins to be filled with love. Because God loved you so freely. And all of a sudden, almost spontaneously, you're starting to love God. And you're a little softer with the people that are around you. You're starting to love your neighbor. And supernaturally now, the gospel is actually fulfilling the law. Surprisingly, spontaneously. This is the wonder um, of the gospel. And that's why as a church, we preach the gospel over and over again. Because it is the only thing, the law cannot change my heart, the gospel can. The gospel gives me a renewed love for God and for my neighbor. And so when I receive the gift of the gospel, forgiveness, delight, sonship, grace, confidence, I have a heart that obeys the law not out of fear, am I going to please God, not out of a desire to get uh, control, uh, get God to do what I want. I have nothing to fear. Jesus has taken away all my sin. I have nothing to get from God. He has given me all things in Christ. I obey the law out of a grateful heart, humbled and softened by all that he has done for me. In Jesus. This is the difference between the law and the gospel. And we as a church, we must be diligent to be wise, to discern the difference. You meet someone who's discouraged. You meet someone in, in your life, and you're going to talk to them, right? Do they need the law or the gospel? We must understand it in our own hearts if we're going to give it uh, to one another and to our neighbors. Let's pray together.